now that we're T-minus eight minutes. Uh, week four of our series on, um, on uh, the book of Romans, and, and just to kind of briefly review what we've covered so far, from chapter one, um, uh, after the introductory notes, uh, Paul begins in, in, in uh, 118 by describing the wrath of God that is being revealed because man has suppressed the knowledge of God. That's the, the opening statement of, of his explanation of the gospel and how the righteous live by faith. Um, this suppression leads to idolatry. Sin against God is, is what he initially describes, and then he goes on to move uh, and talk about how this suppression has led to sin against others as well. And, and as we noted two weeks ago, God's wrath is, is giving man over to his sinful desires and resulting in the perverting and distorting of the create, created order. And there's this creation turned upside down something that we're going to return to at the end of chapter 2 as well. Um, But that's where we left off in chapter 1. And um, today, in chapter 2, he turns from pagan depravity to set his sights more on religious moralism. So, in many respects, he goes from talking about the Gentiles who had no revelation of God. He already indicted them because... God has revealed Himself to them. Now He turns to the Jews who do have the revelation of God. And His point is to demonstrate that they are under sin and God's judgment as well. So, the four parts that we're going to cover today, uh, we're going to look at verses 1-5, through where a general statement on self-righteousness and God's judgment. And then He describes how the judgment of God works. Um... How is God going to judge the world? Maybe the question would be, would be answered there. And he speaks about God's, uh, the role of God's law in judgment. Remember, if he's talking to Jews who have the law, he's explaining to them um, some of the background of how this is going to work. Um, then he exposes Jewish hypocrisy. I miscounted, there's five points here. And then he concludes by emphasizing how God looks at the heart. Um, So with that, those are are, our kind of five sections that we're going to take one by one today. Uh, Again, it's a Bible study. We're just going to read the text and explain it, um, work through it little by little. Um, But this will help us kind of gather our thoughts a little bit. Um, um, these five sections. So let's begin uh, by looking at verses 1 through 5. And uh, could I have a volunteer to uh, read that loud and clear? Romans 2, 1 through 5. Mark, thank you.
good. Thank you. <clears throat> As we seek to break down verses 1 through 5 here, uh, I want to ask you, what is, what is Paul's main point in this entire section of chapters 1 through 3? Pretty easy. Cody? What's his main point in chapter 1, chapter 2, and first part of chapter 3? That's right. That's right. He concludes all the way from 118 to 38 with this summary in 39. All I've shown you, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Chapter 1, the pagan Gentiles are under sin. And remember how chapter 1 ended. Um, they know God's righteous decree. They know that those who practice those things deserve to die. Right? They know that even apart from the Bible. They know that via natural revelation. But they not only practice those things, but they give approval to those who practice those things. But think about how chapter 2 begins, the very next verse. Therefore, so conclusion there, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. Uh, do you, you, you get the, 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 the play here on judging, judgment? He condemns those in verse 32 who do not judge sin. You approve of evil things. You're not judging sin rightly. Now he condemns in verse 1 those who wrongly judge sin. sin of judging in chapter 2 is in passing judgment on these Gentiles you condemn yourself because you the judge practice the very same things. So his point in this is driving towards 229 that God judges according to the heart. Not based upon physical descent Covenantal privileges, religiosity, moralism, or having godly knowledge. He's saying those things do not enable you to judge people as if you don't deserve the same judgment. Because it's easy for the moral and the religious to look at homosexuality in chapter 1. The paganism of chapter 1 and assume, oh man, God's going to judge you. Oh, but we're, but we're cool. We're alright. Because, you know, we, we know the law. And God's made promises to us. And we live pretty good lives. That, that's the point he's driving at. Um, he's driving at that because he wants to expose, again, moralism, self-sufficiency, hypocrisy, self-righteousness. There's a right way and a wrong way to judge. As Jesus certainly pointed out, he talks about removing the speck in our brother's eye while ignoring the log that is in our own. We are called to judge. We are called to judge with righteous judgment. We are called to identify sin and call men to repent. But doing that and refusing to do so yourself is hypocrisy and it just makes adds, heaps up sin upon sin upon sin. 
So, I mean, this is a warning to us, too. I thought um, it's good to point out. You know, Paul mentions that the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, we might enjoy those things in life, um, but let's not miss how Paul says, uh, the Word says here, this is meant to lead you to repentance. When God gives you good things in life, it's not, it's not because He's so pleased with you that you're just such a great person that everything's cool between you two. In fact, it speaks in that manner. All of God's gifts are to lead us to further repentance, further acknowledging of God in all of our ways, further putting sin to death to live by the Spirit. All of His goodness is meant to lead us to a greater and greater life of repentance. And when we fail to grasp that, we fall in that danger of this hypocrisy, self-righteousness that He's condemning here. And again, although passing judgment does not mean failing to point out sin according to God's law, being harsher in our judgment of others than we are upon ourselves, failing to recognize and deal with our own guilt is a great evil worthy of God's judgment. So this is his general opening here, which kind of tells us where he's going. Uh, warning against this hypocrisy, warning against this kind of judgmentalism that, 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 um, um, that marks moralists, self-righteous Pharisees. And, and this sets the tone for the rest of the chapter to come because he's, he's aiming at that person and he wants to show their sin and hypocrisy and that God's wrath is being revealed against them too. Um, that God will judge the, 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 the religious Jews as the wicked pagans. He will judge them all. And, and, you know, of course, his whole point in this ultimately is to get to how the righteous are to live by faith and how we need a righteousness that doesn't come from within but comes from without, that is received by faith. The righteousness of God that comes from Jesus Christ. This is just part of his argument. And so from there, now he's going to explain how God's judgment works. God's going to judge you. Now let me tell you how that works. Any questions or comments? Well, let's look at how God's judgment works. Um, if you look there in verse 5, chapter 2, Paul mentions the day of wrath. You're storing up for yourselves wrath. On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So he's talking about the end time final judgment of God. That's his subject. That's his topic. That's his focus. And this is important as we move on. Now he wants to, he wants to comment on that day, what that day is going to be like in verses 6-11. Uh, through 11. Volunteer to uh, read 6-11? through 11? Thank you, Mitch. Those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth. 
What about unrighteousness? There will be wrath and fury. For there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first, and also the Greek. For glory and honor and peace to everyone who does goodness. The Jew first, and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Thank you. Um, I want to slow down and proceed with caution here. Um, because this section of Scripture has been used and twisted um, in some very dangerous ways, even among people within our own camp, Reformed people. Um, men like John Murray. Men like John Piper. Um, not to name names, but I disagree with their interpretation. I think that they can lead in some dangerous directions. I want to ask you, what is he talking about in this section? Um, doesn't it sound, he will render to each one according to his works. Doesn't it sound that on the day of judgment, God will judge us by our works? He will render each one according to his works. Those who by patience seek immortality, those who are self-seeking wrath and fury. What does this mean? And I say no wrong answers here because I want you to feel, how have you interpreted this before? Um, or how have you heard this interpreted? If you were preaching justification by faith and somebody brought this up to you and said, what is Paul talking about here? How would you respond? Doug? I would say we uh, are judged by our works, but if we are believers, we're judged by the imputed works of Christ instead. Yes. Yep, absolutely. Um, so ours would be righteous. That, yes, yeah, that would be a way of that. Absolutely, I agree. That would be a way of, of answering that question. Yeah, uh, Scripture always interprets Scripture. Um, the clearer passages explain and give light to the, the, the passages that, that are more difficult to understand. Um, and we, we know from the plethora of statements in Scripture that um, by the works of the law, no man will be justified. Yes. Um, that's, that's where I would disagree. And that's what some people say. Um, so, uh, popular interpretations of this passage are that um, we will still be judged by works at the last day. Um, not according to our, not on the basis of our justification, 
but that our works in some sense play a role in our justification. So, um, <laughs> Cody, you're smiling back there. You've, you've heard this a lot, yes. Um, so, you know, there, there are views of, okay, you have the imputed righteousness of Christ, but your works at the last day um, um, kind of uh, vindicate that or go alongside that and play a role in your justification so that um, we may be saved by faith, but we enter heaven on the basis, or we enter heaven on the basis of the evidence of good works. I know you aren't. I know you aren't. Exactly. I'm, I'm saying, I'm kind of paraphrasing what, what some other men have said. Am I getting this right, Cody? Because uh, I know that you've read some on this. I, to answer the question, I, I like but what both of you said in regards to, you went to the righteousness of Christ, and you went to, okay, other scriptures have to help here. Because what we have to do first and foremost is remember the context. We have to remember what, what the subject and the, the topic is. The last day of judgment, God's wrath against sin. But how does he conclude? God shows no partiality. All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And its conclusion in verse 20 of chapter 3. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified. He will render to each one according to his works. By the works of the law, no one will be justified. He hasn't gotten to justification yet. You've you, you got you to let him get there. He doesn't get there until chapter 3, verse 21. And when he does, he's crystal clear, you're not going to be saved by works. His point is you got no hope to be saved by works. And so his point is to put all people under sin and remove any hope of self-justification so that he can finally say, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from good works. The righteousness that only comes from God, through faith, in Jesus Christ. Uh, my point in this, I've got a picture, a beautiful picture of the Garden of Eden here. He's simply explaining how the law, how judgment works under the law, the covenant of works. Okay, Mr. Jew, you got the law. You you really you really you really want you really want to be judged by that standard? There's no bend or break in the law. He's going to judge everyone according to works. He's not going to show partiality. He's going to look at your heart. And it's going to be exact. Perfect obedience, eternal life. Disobedience, eternal death. He's tapping into this, this, this foundational covenant of works in the garden that obedience brings eternal life. Do this and live. Don't do this and die. The soul that sins shall die. 
But, but as we see that, we, we've got to keep reading because he's not telling you to pursue that. He's, 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 he's warning the Jews of this judgment, of this standard, of this immutable covenant of creation. God will not be partial. And, you know, this is why um, the Garden of Eden is so important to understand in the Gospel. There's a great book by my friend Richard Barcelos, Getting the Garden Right. Um, it, it's kind of the thesis in many respects. If you get creation wrong, you get everything wrong. The covenant of works explains and is foundational to the gospel in, in many respects. Part of, part of it is because uh, it shows us that we cannot earn eternal life through our obedience, but also it gives us the framework to understanding why Jesus Christ came and lived and died and was raised. Why did He need to come to earth? Why couldn't He just be uh, killed by Herod as an infant. Blood would be shed. He's the perfect Son of God. He could have atoned for the sins of everyone by being, being killed as an infant when Herod tried to kill Why? Why did he have to live 33 years? Because obedience brings eternal life. There must be an obedience. There must be good works to be saved. Paul is saying... He will render to each one according to his works. And eventually where he's going to go is, those aren't your works. They're Christ. Um, and we're going to return to this in a moment. Uh, but just to recap as we keep moving forward, because Paul brings this out more. Um, we've seen self-righteousness and God's judgment. How God's judgment works, he's going to judge by works. Ultimately, that's how the day of judgment um, is going to go. He's going to show no impartiality. Um, he's eventually going to get to Christ, but now he's going to move on to an explanation of how the law works in that judgment. Mr. Jew, you have the law. God's going to judge by works. Well, let's think about this. Questions or comments? Kim? Um, yeah, and that's a much larger subject than, than what Paul's tackling here, but just when thinking about what, what is the day of judgment going to be like for Christians, um, um, there, is, there can be a fear. Oh my goodness, everything that I've said and done and thought is going to be up on the big screen, and I'm going to be ashamed. Um, that's not how the Bible speaks of the day of judgment for the Christian. It's going to be a day of joy, of celebration, of vindication. 
Um, yes, our works in some respect are going to be brought up because our good works will be rewarded, but also I think there will be a vindication shown in the sense of, of an exposing of, of our good deeds as, as from a heart of love for God and faith in Him that, that vindicate and prove um, the righteous, uh, the righteousness. Um, but I do not think that the Bible speaks of that last day for Christians as being a day where we shrink back in shame. And, and again, it goes back to what Doug was pointing out, like ultimately at the end of the day, it's the righteousness of Christ. It's His good works that, that, that are everything and, and our focus and our, um, the uh, foundation of our, in totality of our salvation. Uh, well, let's keep reading. Romans 2, 12 through 16. I'll read this one. We've got to pick up the pace a little bit. He continues, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Here he's repeating what he kind of already said. It's the doers of the law that will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. The questions that he's addressing here is, does the law give Jews preferential treatment? What about those who've never read the law or don't know about the covenant of works or special revelation? If he's going to judge everyone by works, if you don't know what good works are, if you don't know that you're under that covenant of creation, the covenant of works, that doesn't seem very fair. So what's his answer to these things? That, that's what he's addressing. His answer is, it's not the hearers, but the doers who will be justified. Again, speaking of the covenant of works. He's speaking of, of how that covenant works. Gentiles will be judged, excuse me, Jews will be judged by the law, and Gentiles will be judged by the very same law. Key here is that justification requires a doer of the law. Right? It's only a doer of the law who will be justified. And, and again, his, his point is it's, gonna, it's not you. As R.C. Sproul used to famously say, he would always talk about quizzing his students the first semester, and he would ask a question, true or false, we are saved by works. And uh, everyone would put false, no, we're saved by faith. And he would always come back and say, no, you are saved by works, just not your own. 
Christianity is a salvation by works. Christ works for us in our place as a substitute, imputed to us, received by faith, so that his life is our life, his death is our death. It's it's important to understanding the gospel. Justification requires a doer of the law. But, again, as part of this larger argument, even if you weren't standing at Sinai when God gave that law, even if you've never heard of God's law, even if you've never read the account of Adam in the garden, the law is written on our hearts. In the heart of all men. And we also have this conscience, the moral awareness, which is not quite the same thing. Um, but it's, it's this evidence that we know the law. It will be brought up as evidence at the last day that you knew God's righteous decree. And in this way, the standard of judgment at the last day is going to be entirely fair and just. A Gentile can say, I, I never read Exodus or Genesis or anything. And thus, you can't judge me from based upon what I don't know. His point is, Mr. Jew, Mr. Gentile, you both have the law. You both know it. Unfortunately, Mr. Jew, you're not obeying it. You can't obey it. Um, as we think about the, the doctrinal implications of this passage, it's, it's a key passage in, in understanding uh, the doctrine of natural law. By virtue of creation in the image of God, uh, we have the law written upon our hearts. Um, it's a key passage um, uh, regarding the, the judgment of those who never hear the gospel. Again, addressing God's fairness. Um, it's key in understanding the parallel between the covenant of works and the Mosaic law. Um, this passage doesn't make sense if natural law is not equal to the Mosaic law. Think about that. That's on the right, that's the Garden of Eden. That's another. <laughs> and of course, that's Moses, Rembrandt's famous depiction of Moses in the Ten Commandments. Uh, they're the same. The Mosaic Covenant at Sinai manifested, revealed the covenant of works in creation. And it revived it. And it invigorated that eternal covenant. It made it obvious. God's dealing with Israel in that covenant is nothing but a, a recapitulation. Which, how would I define that? What, what is the definition of that? A redoing, a, 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 a remanifesting, um, a reappearing of His first covenant with Moses. And his point in the Mosaic Covenant, centered around obedience of the law, he's using earthly temporary categories to teach about the condition that we're all in by nature under the covenant of works. Which is why Israel failed. Why Israel broke the covenant. Why God divorced them. Cast them out of the land. You broke my covenant. There needs to be a new covenant. Um, I've got a 
uh, either one or two lessons on sermon audio. It's under the, co- the series on covenant theology that I did a few years ago, where I break this down in more detail in the importance of seeing the Mosaic covenant and the covenant of works as the same thing. This is why, as well, rejecting the covenant of works always brings danger. If you don't see any sort of arrangement in the garden, uh, any sort of covenantal arrangement or any sort of covenantal works language, then, then you'll turn the Mosaic covenant into a covenant of grace where you can really fulfill those obligations. Um, you won't see the dichotomy between works, works-based righteousness and faith-based righteousness. Now, yes, uh, the, covenant, uh, the Mosaic Covenant had sacrifices built in. It, it promulgated and, and promoted the causes of the Covenant of Grace. Uh, but as Baptists, particularly, we do not identify the Mosaic Covenant with a Covenant of Grace. Uh, I believe the book of Hebrews and Galatians would be the place to go on that. It's very clear. You broke the covenant. It's over. That covenant was a ministry of death, Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians um, it was a, a yoke and a burden that the, the Israel could not bear, Peter speaks of in the book of Acts. Um, and it's because at the end of the day, that covenant depended upon the obedience of the Israelites. And that's why they were cast out of the land, because they did not obey. All right, moving on. Um, We've got to keep reading because this connection between the garden and Sinai is made even more explicit. And so, so we've got ten minutes left. I'm going I'm to read and quickly speed through this. If you call yourself a Jew, verse 17, and rely upon the law, you boast in God, you know His will, you approve what is excellent, you are instructed by the law, if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, you're a light to... Uh, in darkness. You're an instructor, instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? For you boast in the law Excuse me, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Again, the crux of the matter of this chapter is Jewish hypocrisy. You're trusting in the law, but you're not obeying it. You have no hope. You need another righteousness. And even your disobedience by claiming that you Um, do keep this law and are basing your standing before God on your law keeping, you're you're, you're bringing blasphemy upon God. Um, So here we have just kind of a list of um, the Pharisee. You know, he had covenantal privileges. He boasted in God. He knew God's will. He was a teacher and a guide. And he had the embodiment of knowledge and truth. I can't help but notice that this is kind of parallel to what Paul, how Paul describes himself before conversion in Philippians 3. I've got confidence in the flesh. I've been circumcised. I'm the people of Israel. I'm the tribe of Benjamin. I'm um, 
you know, I have the law, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm zealous, I'm righteous under it, blameless. That means I'm not a covenant breaker, I've kept all the externals. And he goes on to say, oh, that's, I had to count as, as dung, as worthless. Because I needed the righteousness that comes from God based upon faith. So this is the same thing he's driving at. Very same thing. And he doesn't get to that righteousness by faith till chapter 3, but for now, we've got to see this is what he's driving at. Um, so he's, he's seeking to expose this hypocrisy. He's seeking to demonstrate that although they know the law, they aren't really any better than the Gentiles at keeping the law. And his overall point that he's driving at at the end is the problem of human sin, the problem that God's wrath presents against us in light of this, isn't remedied by an absence or presence of the knowledge of the law or covenantal privileges. It's the human heart. Although they boasted in the law and they taught others, they broke it and thus the name of God is blasphemed. Maybe a way of summarizing it would be, would be by saying moralism and self-righteousness causes blasphemy, which is, ought to be a frightening statement to us all. Hypocrisy, pretending to be someone you're not. Sinfully judging others when you yourselves practice the same things. Thinking that because of your obedience, you have special status before God. These things bring blasphemy. How many times have you and I heard, you know, the church is full of hypocrites? Gandhi said, uh, I love Jesus, I hate his followers. I'm paraphrasing. Blaspheme God from what he, because of what he saw, hypocrisy. That's Paul's point here. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones had a great quote here. He said, as, as you read your Bible day to day, do you apply the truth to yourself? What is your motive when you read the Bible? Is it just to have a knowledge of it so that you can show others how much you know or argue with them? Or are you applying the truth to yourself, to yourselves? As you read, say to yourself, this is me. What is it saying about me? Allow the scripture to search you, otherwise it can be very dangerous. There is a sense in which the more you know of the Bible, the more dangerous it is to you if you do not apply it to yourself. That last statement is, uh, that hits home. The more you know, the more dangerous it is if you fail, fail to apply it to yourself. Um, one last note here. Um, yeah, just, I just want to point out the sins that he lists in verses 21 through 23. Stealing, adultery, idolatry. Where are those sins found? Ten Commandments. God's not going to hold the Gentiles 
guilty for failing to offer a lamb sacrifice or failing to circumcise their sons or failing to bring a peace offering or failing to have a high priest. Um, those are ceremonial and uh, aspects of the law that are revealed via special re- revelation. When we talk about the parallel between the garden and the parallel between Sinai and the moral law, the Ten Commandments are the moral law. The Ten Commandments are the eternal moral law that is written on the heart of man. Um, and this is a key passage for, for understanding that because Paul is talking about those who do the law and he's talking about how we're going to be judged. His focus is the Ten Commandments. That, that, that section of the Mosaic Covenant that lied at the heart of the covenant that, that God wrote with His very finger. In 2 Corinthians 2, we also read how He wrote uh, that law upon tablets of human heart of the human heart. And we see other statements in the New Testament about that being the center of the law of God that's, that's eternal. Um, so it's important to note that. So we're going to conclude... Um, the conclusion, uh, we've seen, that's what we've seen in the recap, uh, now again concludes by emphasizing how God looks at the heart. Uh, verse 25, for circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. I've got two minutes, so I'm going to just wrap up right here. He goes after the Jewish pride in circumcision. It was a sign of God's covenant with them, but it was only an outward sign. Moses repeatedly said, look, you need to be circumcised in heart. That's what that pointed to. It doesn't do you any good to have the external, but not the internal. And ultimately, it's only a value if, if, if you keep the law, which nobody has except for Christ. Um. Galatians 5.3, everyone who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. Again, going back to the fact that it's tied to the works element of the Mosaic Covenant. It bound the one circumcised to obey it all. And if you didn't, you would be cut off. And it also pointed forward to the male who would come, who would be cut off, and who would obey it all. Thus, circumcision finds its preeminence, not in baptism, but in Christ. But his point, the sign which portrayed their need for obedience and the deliverer to come, the male to come, who would be cut off, actually became for them a curse and a judgment. I said last week that creation turned upside down in Revelation, uh, excuse me, in Romans 1. Now we see redemption turned upside down by the sinfulness of man and and the Jews in the Mosaic Covenant. Thus, it's a matter of the heart. And so, to conclude, knowledge of God and His law, covenantal privileges, physical descent, lineage, outward moralism, religious practice, mean nothing in regards to escaping God's judgment. 
The true child of God, the true child of the covenant, the true Abraham's offspring, the true Jew. Right? Talk about dispensationalism and, and the definition of the true Israel. It's one who has been circumcised in the heart, who receives praise from men. Excuse me, not from men, but from God. That is Paul's ultimate point. Driving towards that only comes by faith. All right, I've got to, I've got to conclude. I've already said all this already. His judgment is perfect. He looks at the heart. All will be exposed. He's getting to what you need a righteousness from God that depends upon faith at the end of the day.